701 on a Thursday. Happy Thursday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, we are also brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. North Star! Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. The Canucks talk continues here on your home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. Joining us now, happy to have him on the program. He was on the call last night for Vancouver's 5-3 loss in Edmonton to the Oilers at Rogers Place. Brendan Batchelor, Canucks play-by-play man here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. What up, Batch? Not a lot. How's it going this morning? Uh, it's all right. I'll say this. Almost regardless of the end result, the game had enough action and drama and intrigue in it that all the people that were starving for Canucks hockey have responded in tow this morning. The Dunbar Lumber text line is jammed, full of replies and responses. People are very, very emotionally invested in this. We're trying to solve the power play, Batch. And we're trying to solve the power play. So why don't we start well, there? Well, it's, it's great because... I, when you go away for the summer and even through the preseason, you forget how rabid people get about this team. Mm -hmm. And then you have a game like last night. And like, I just took a peek into the Dunbar lumber text line myself just to see what the mood kind of was. And I was like, Oh, okay, here we go. We're right back at it again. (laughs) So it's, it's great to see that there's so many people so fired up about this team. But again, I do have to caution. It is just one game and we've got another one coming up on Saturday. Uh, I kind of framed it like this in the intro, and it's lengthy, which is kind of my thing. Uh, you know, the result, bad. No point out of a game in which you led 3 nothing and had eight power play chances. To not get a singular point out of that, bad. Uh, overall process, you had to like the start. You had to like long stretches of play, especially at five-on-five. Five. And if the coaching staff and players are to be believed, you can clean up some of these mistakes that you know a lot resulted in five unanswered goals there. So... Overall, there was a lot to take from the game. I guess the big question is, how will this team look when they're not playing against McDavid and Drysaddle and everyone else? Because the rest of the road trip won't have those guys on it. Yeah, and and that's exactly it. And that was sort of my takeaway is absolutely it's a disappointing loss. And I'm not saying that as a Canucks fan, you shouldn't be disappointed when your team takes a 3-0 lead on the road in the season opener and finds a way to lose. But you know, in a game where they give up three power play goals, the empty netter technically counted as a power play goal. So it's three power play goals against and a shorthanded goal against the Edmonton Oilers might be the only team in the league that can capitalize on their opportunities on the man advantage as effectively as they did in that game last night. And I know that, you know, part of this is everybody still remembers how much the Canucks penalty kill cost them games last year early on. And, you know, how much the the power play struggled at times and, you know, it, 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 even at the best of times, this power play has been streaky. So I'm not too concerned about a season opening game where they still score on the power play, although, you know, they probably could have had another one, certainly with the number of chances they had. Although, again, the power play stats get blown out of proportion because a couple of those were shortened power plays. So one for eight looks worse than it was in my mind. But, you know, the underlying process that, that I come away from that game looking at if you're you know, trying to look at the bigger picture and the way that this team might have success down the stretch is they outplayed the Edmonton Oilers at five on five. And, you know, yes, 
they've got two of the best players in the world who can make you play, pay on the power play, and they certainly did last night. But if you play that way against Philadelphia on Saturday, you probably win. And if you play that way against Washington and Columbus and Minnesota next week, you probably win. So if you can continue to play that way at five-on-five, five, which I was really impressed, especially in the first period, how quick they played, how much the Oilers had trouble with their forecheck. Yeah. These are the kind of things that over the long run, if you can play that way consistently, you know, will lead to this team being markedly better than they have been in the past. You know, it's the consistently question that comes into it because – you know, even if you play that way for all 82 games, you're not going to win them all. And certainly last night was one of those games where special teams played a factor again. So they have to make sure that that doesn't become the trend to start this year like it did last year. I also think this team, as as well as they finished last season under Bruce Boudreau, I, I still wonder what the belief level of this team is internally. Like, do they believe they're a good team? Do they believe when they're up 3 nothing against the Edmonton Oilers that they can lock down that game, win that game, and move on to the next. So, in a way, I I know it was only one game of this one game of the season, but I do wonder how, at the very least, it's going to impact the rest of the road trip. For example, if they do get a lead on Saturday in Philly, how are they going to play? Are they going to play with confidence, or is it going to be tentative because of what happened in Edmonton? Yeah, and to be honest, I thought they were playing with confidence with the lead until the first Oiler goal and, you know, the non-call on Hughes, which, you know, ends up being a turning point in the game. But I made this point on Twitter last night. It's 3-1 at that point. It's up to you to make sure that that's not a turning point in the game. You know, obviously we're saying that it is now because the Oilers come back and win 5-3 and that's the first goal. But, you know, as an NHL club, you have to have the mental strength and, and fortitude to say, okay, we had one go against us, but we're still up by two. Let's get back to the way we were playing. And it felt like the Oilers grabbed a ton of momentum off that goal almost right away. So, you know, as much as, you know, I think this team, you know, getting back to what you were talking about, it does have improved confidence. They've talked about it a lot coming into the season. We saw them, you know, find ways to win games down the stretch last year. But that said, they are still a team that is learning how to win every night and how to be consistent in that and how to, you know, have that level of confidence that they can find a way to win games no matter what. Uh, and, you know, that's really only something that the, the top teams in the league and true Stanley Cup contenders do in terms of, uh, you know, look at the Oilers last night. They were down 3 nothing. They've got the top players that can make the difference for them. They've got the special teams that can make the difference for them, and, and they find a way to come back and win that game. The Canucks are still learning how to do that, but, you know, if, if you take anything away from the way they spoke all the way through training camp, all the way through the preseason – they seem like a more confident group to me, but that said, it's one thing to talk about being more confident. It's another thing to show it on the ice. So it is something to watch for as we go forward here. But, you know, again, coming off one game, which we're going to microanalyze for the next couple of days, I don't know if it's something to be too concerned about yet. If we see it happen again on this road trip where they build a lead and can't protect it, then, you know, maybe you can see some cracks there, but it's one game against the best power play probably of this generation. So uh, I'm not going to read too much into it. And, and Connor McDavid might be the fastest kid alive, but that does lead me to ask the question about the line of Miller, Besser, 
and Pearson. Any concern that all three of those guys, I'm not saying like they're skating on their ankles out there or anything, but they're not burners. And I'm just wondering about the makeup of that line. If that line is going to be deployed against the best lines in the NHL, if that line is the Canucks de facto number one line, is it fast enough? That's a good question. And I I have concerns about that too. Let's put it that way. Um, but what you hope for from that line is that they're playing with the puck more so than without it. And, you know, we've seen them be really effective at grinding down low, creating offense from deep in the offensive zone. And, you know, that I imagine uh, would be Bruce Boudreaux's thinking in terms of, you know, all three of those guys being pretty effective at that. And Besser can kind of be a trigger man on that line. Uh, of course, Miller is very capable of scoring goals as well. But, you know, speed is the name of the game in the NHL right now. And, you know, I, I think for those guys, what's going to be crucial is how well they can establish their forecheck. And they are a pretty good forechecking line because if you can bother teams getting in on the forecheck quickly, then you prevent them from having that quick strike transition. And then your speed doesn't matter as much because you're the team that's taking it to them rather than them being the team that takes it to you. But, you know, in terms of, of hard matchups, it's going to be really interesting to see how that develops because I think – you know, in a perfect world, Elias Pettersson is probably this team's best matchup centerman. But as long as you have him on a line with the wingers he's playing right now, playing with right now, you can't use him as that true matchup centerman because Kuzmenko's just coming into the league and, you know, he scores a nice goal last night. But if there are going to be growing pains for Kuzmenko, they're going to be on the defensive side of the puck and on the speed of the game and the transition because, of course, uh, you know, the KHL is is very different in terms of, of speed of play. Um, and, of course, Niels Hoaglander, we don't even know what his status is going to be within this lineup if Ilya Mikheyev gets back because I would imagine that that's where they'll look to slot him in. So, um, you know, it, it may end up developing to the point where – Pedersen becomes the matchup centerman at some point, but he's going to need to have more reliable defensive wingers before they truly look to do that. Yeah, I'm just watching the replay of the of the game winner uh, by McDavid, and the Canucks did have the puck in the Oilers' zone, and it was the the Miller Pearson Horvat line out there, and you can just see in transition the Canucks couldn't get back. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't – I'm not going to sit here and rip. Like, he wasn't back-checking. Like, J.T. Miller was essentially in front of the Oilers' net. So that's a long way to skate back. But that's one of the things, right? Like, when you're – that's why it's really nice when your centers are, are really great skaters because they can get back in a situation. And J.T. Miller couldn't get back in that situation. It's just what I – was. some of the things that I wonder, and, and I wonder about how Mikheyev will be deployed, which – brings you brings me to you know the, the point that you're trying to make is like is he going to go on that Pedersen line um and if he is will he even be deployed defensively because Kuzmenko could still be on that line I wonder if Kuzmenko or sorry not Kuzmenko Mikheyev should be maybe on a line with Miller and Besser to take advantage of that speed if they're going to use him defensively yeah, and I think that'll be sort of something that we see develop once McKayev gets back into the lineup. And, you know, 
Boudreaux has been pretty straightforward with what he's wanted from his line combinations here, where once he's gotten healthy, he's essentially been going back to the lines that we saw at the start of training camp, right? As soon as Besser got back, he went right back in on the Miller line. So my expectation is that they're looking for more of an offensive role uh, from McKayev at least to start, and that he probably will go back into Hoaglander's spot on the Pedersen line. Whether that ends up being the best spot for him remains to be seen, because you're right, um, you know, it is just one game yesterday, and it is, you know, the fastest player in the league in Connor McDavid that they're going up against that scores that game-winning goal. But if we continue to see a trend that leads you to believe that there's not enough speed on that Miller line, then Mikheyev is the guy to give you speed on that line. Um, so, you know, there, there's going to be lots of moving parts here. And again, when you're focusing on just one game, it's, it's you know, tempting to tear things up and try to try to build them back up again. And, you know, maybe Boudreaux will be tempted to do that too. We'll see how they skate at their practice tomorrow in Philadelphia. But um, I, I want a bit more of a sample size here. And especially once Mikheyev gets back in, because once he's in there, you'll finally have the top nine forward group that Boudreaux had intended to start the season with. And then we can try to read into uh, you know, is this line too slow? What's the best deployment in terms of a matchup centerman? Uh, these are all things that, that Boudreaux and his coaching staff will be working through as we work through watching this team play as well. But when it's Connor McDavid on one night, you might just have to put up your hands and say that's yeah. he is the fastest kid alive, right? So, uh, you know, those things happen sometimes when you're playing against him. What did you think of the, the much maligned Canucks blue line that was also missing guys like Tyler Myers and Travis Dermott. I thought they were much better than I had any expectation that they would be. Um, you know, especially at five on five, you know, if you're looking at a game where you only give up one goal at five on five to Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers, then that is a good game defensively and you know yes we can read into the power play but you're you're not worrying about defending when you're on the power play and you know the shorthanded goal really stings um but you know i i thought you know pullman for example i thought was way better than i would have expected him to be i thought the stillman burrows pairing did a pretty good job of keeping their heads above water and they weren't a problem for you you know quinn hughes was quinn hughes um, I, I really don't have much in terms of criticism for that blue line based on how it's constructed. Um, you know, the fact that you can give your team a chance to win in a game where I didn't think Demko had to be amazing. Um, you know, he, he made a few key saves, which, you know, I heard you guys talking. It's almost like McDavid where you expect him to make those key saves. And, uh, and I certainly thought he did, but, um, you know, when it when it comes to that blue line and, and especially, you know, if, if you had said to me two or three weeks ago, this is what the blue line is going to look like on the opening night against the Oilers, I would have gone, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, that it's going to be ugly. And it wasn't that ugly. Again, one even strength goal against. I, You know, those guys did a pretty good job. But if they can continue to play that way and keep their heads above water until some of these guys get back into the lineup, then it's going to give the Canucks a chance to win. And, uh, you know, it's it's – it's going to be a good sign for this group to try and get points throughout the rest of this road trip. We're speaking to a Brendan Batchelor here on the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet 650. Batch, of course, the play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks. Batch, I'll allow you to spare a moment here to talk about the officiating or lack thereof 
last night. I'll even throw out the disclaimer and the precursor that the Canucks did not lose that game because of officiating, and no one likes blaming the referees, but they weren't good last night. That is about as, as, as egregious a miscall as you can get in the National Hockey League. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I made this point on Twitter last night as well that, you know, you, you still have to find a way to win that game. You can't let that call be the turning point. But that said, that's a call that in the era where we have challenges and video review, I don't understand how we're not at a point yet where something like that can't be overturned by video review. And, you know, uh, Halford, you're a soccer guy. I, I am as well. It seems like in soccer, anything that happens in the buildup towards a goal can be reviewed. Mm. And I don't understand why that's not the case in hockey. Just review every goal, and if there's something obvious that means that goal shouldn't have counted, then use your video replay ability to overturn it. And I know people don't want more challenges in the game and, you know, that the people already feel that they, they take up time and, you know, especially with the offside challenges that, um, you know, it's it's sometimes such a marginal uh, decision that changes the difference in the game. But if we're already doing reviews where a very marginal close play at the blue line prevents a goal, then, you know, a very obvious high stick that, you know, should have been a four-minute penalty should mm. prevent the goal for the Oilers. And and that's sort of what I came away thinking about is, is why are we still at the point in an era where you have all this video technology and you want to use it that something like that still happens in a game? Well, it's the classic, like, you can't unring the replay bell. Like, once it's been rung and it's yeah. out there, now you're committed to using it. The next question with everything becomes – why are we using it in this instance and not that instance? <laughs> Roughing the passer in the NFL, Halford wants that reviewed now. And, well, that but wants everything reviewed. He wants and like I do, and like, I, and, I do love a good and, video review. And, and by the way, soccer guys, is VAR not getting on the nerves of everyone in soccer as well? Yes, but the overriding theme is that they're getting it right. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, the only thing I'll say is like I can think of a game earlier this season for Man United where there was like a, a questionable foul that went uncalled and then I think it was against United actually I can't remember the specific it was the game, Arsenal it was game like, it was when Erickson got fouled in the midfield yeah, and then, and right, then exactly. Arsenal went down and scored yeah and so like as a United fan I still thought that should have been a good goal for Arsenal but it was a, a foul at midfield that allowed Arsenal to transition and immediately score. And it was a 50-50 foul, but they went to video review and they pulled the goal back because of the 50-50 foul. Like, that mm -hmm. I can understand where, where people are getting into not understanding VAR, but at the same time, if it's a foul by the letter of the law and a goal happens right after, then you should at least have a look at it and when it's an obvious penalty like it was against Hughes last night in a hockey game, I just look at how that happens in soccer. And you know what? No video review is ever going to be perfect. People no. are always going to have issues with the way it's implemented. But to me, if you have it, you should use it especially to help you in cases where there have been obvious errors made. Look, hockey's the fastest game on the planet. The referees are going to make mistakes. It's sure. going to happen. And sometimes those mistakes are going to be very obvious ones to all of us watching on TV at home. Um, so why not use that video technology to help these guys out a little? Well, bit? it's funny because we always talk about the unintended consequences of decisions. So when you implement replay, now all of a sudden, and we saw it last night. I mean, this has happened a million times over, is that the referees miss a call and almost instantly – 
they are aware of that in large part because of in arena replays and replays on television. And you've got a million different angles and Hughes is bleeding. So they know that they've screwed up. They know that this is going to get replayed a million times, that there's virtually six or seven different camera angles. So what's classic referee response? Well, you start putting the Canucks on the power play to make up for it. And the Canucks finish with eight power plays in the game. It's, it's just one of those dynamics that plays out. And it's, I don't find it necessarily healthy for the game, but that's how it's been done for the longest time. So the question really becomes, do you continue letting referees manage games to this degree, or do you give them all the tools to try and make the right call, but then potentially slow that game down? Yeah, well, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like hockey is, is the only sport where makeup calls are a really big thing. Right. Like in soccer, if a referee misses a a foul, it's not like he goes out and tries to give the other team a foul to even (laughs) it up. Right. Like that does not happen. And it's so ingrained in hockey culture that we're used to it. But why not just get it right the first time? Use the video review that we have to make sure that if the referees go, oh, Hughes is bleeding from his face and the Oilers just scored a goal, maybe we should take a look to see if something <laughs> yeah. happened. Hey, and how did that happen? Do that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. He just he must have blocked a shot or something. Oh, well. Bleeding from his nose. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's, it's common sense to me that in a situation like that, the referee should just be able to go, huh, I wonder if that was a penalty. Why don't we take a look? And then they can make the right decision in that moment, and yes, it might take a little bit longer, but then you don't have the issue of these guys feeling pressure to right a wrong, and as a result, the Canucks end up with eight power plays in the game because that takes away from the flow of the game as well. And, you know, we could go on about this forever, I'm sure, but that's the way I look at it is in an era where you have the video technology and if you can get this sport away from you know officials having to manage games and even up calls and stuff like that, then I think you know, hockey will be better for it in the long run. Future Commissioner Brendan Batchelor, thank you very much for joining us, Batch. Uh, enjoy the rest of the road trip. Enjoy Philly, the afternoon start. Make sure to wake up early. Don't have a big Friday night because we need you. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Batch. Thanks, uh, Brendan Batchelor here on the Halford & Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. I will say uh, the NBA is also often guilty of that. Is that if the, the referee up calls, if the well, if the referees go in at halftime and the fouls are nine to three for one team, right, can almost guarantee that it's going to be nine to nine real quick mm-hmm. at the start of the second half. And soccer has their own rhythm of fouls too, right? Like you, you, you can always tell when a when a foul is going to be called in soccer. It's like you know, if like there's a, on a counterattack, even if there isn't much contact, it's gonna get called. Soccer's gone undergone such a, a dramatic shift in that regard because tactical fouling has become such a prominent part of the game. Right. That's, so the, yeah, the, the, the this is like the Pep Guardiola Man City teams where it's like, what's the best way to stop a counterattack is to foul mm-hmm. the moment that you lose the ball, so you're not getting counterattacked on. Did they start yellow carding that more? Is that was some, that their idea? It, but it really puts the. I'll, I'll use some t- terminology. It puts the, the referees under the cosh because it, it, it becomes. <laughs> I well, think we, we need okay. to go to the commercial now. Don't worry, don't worry about that. Um, it, it becomes really difficult because right. all of a sudden, I mean, you're talking about fine lines where you've given a yellow and now the guy's one more foul away from being right. thrown yeah, yeah, yeah. out. So the referee has to be very, very, very apprehensive about giving that first mm-hmm. yellow. But they will for like a jersey tug or something like that. If they under- an aggressive most jersey referees tug. will understand that if there's a bona fide counterattack that's been snuffed out by a tactical foul, they'll they'll do the yellow. They'll do mm-hmm. the booking. But there's a lot of guys that will take that yellow 
one, to stop a scoring opportunity, but right. two, also realizing that now they've got a kind of weird advantage because they're putting the referee in the spotlight. Like, I dare you to send me off. Mm-hmm. I dare you to give me that second yellow. Right. right? And it becomes a kind of cat and mouse game. Now. Have you ever been under the cosh, Halford? All the time. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just permanently coshed <laughs> underneath it. Okay. What's coming up next? Uh, we have Frank Cervalli on the program next, my friend. Frank's going to join us. We can go around the NHL. We can look at last night. We can look ahead to tonight. Very tantalizing matchups on the horizon. This is a good sports night, by the way. You can settle in and work on your ass groove in the mm-hmm. couch. It'll be a good one. Did you see, not that I should be promoting other shows, not necessarily on this station, but Bo Horvat's agent, Pat Morris, is going to join uh, Donnie and Dolly today. I did see that. And I'll be looking forward to seeing if there's any news to come out of that. Um, Frank Cervelli is going to come up next. And obviously we ask him about Bo Horvat every time. And I heard him on the station the other day. He's like, yeah, this is the one that I constantly have to do. But, you know, there's a lot of criticism for Horvat right now. It's only been one game, but he wasn't at his best last night. Uh, He just wasn't. He didn't make an impact on the game. And I think you have to wonder how much love he's feeling from the organization or for the organization right now. You just, you have to wonder it. Now you can say Bo Horvat is the consummate professional and, you know, he won't let this sort of thing bother him or be a distraction. And maybe that's true, but he's also a human being that's wondering about his future and whether or not his future is going to be with this team. So I'm not expecting Frank to have this big Bo Horvat update for us, but I'd love to hear from the listeners on this. Text into the Dunbar Lumber text line at 650-650. Bo Horvat, what are you thinking right now? What do you think is going to happen with this guy? You know, only one game. Wasn't great, though. I noticed on Canucks Twitter that it was almost like a battle (laughs) between Mm. Horvat and Miller who could get the most criticism in the wake of that blown lead. Uh, Both of them made strong cases. On Canucks Twitter last night, which can be a kind of a ruthless place. I know that. Uh, but so can Hockey Talk in Vancouver. And I, I have to wonder what management is thinking right now, what Horvat is thinking right now, what the chances of a deal getting done between these two sides is. And if a deal isn't done, what happens then? You're listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. The good news is clear to stall in Surrey, but now there's a medical emergency westbound Fraser Highway between 180. Horvat, right wing for Kuzmenko, into the Oilers zone, goes rink wide, left point for JT Miller. Miller throws it to the net, tip, they score! Andre Kuzmenko, his first NHL goal as he drove the net and redirected the Miller shot past Jack Campbell. 7.34 on a Thursday. Happy Thursday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Three dealerships to serve you better. North Shore Acura, Acura of Langley, and Burrard Acura on Terminal Avenue. Uh, this hour of the program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling. They recycle. You get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. To the phone lines we go. We are joined by our next guest who joins us every Thursday here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. It is Daily Faceoff's Frank Saravalli. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? How's Vancouver feeling this morning? Uh, It's an interesting morning. I'll say this. People are passionate and engaged and 
There were a lot of talking points from last night, so there's no shortage of yeah. things to discuss and no shortage of things to gripe about because the Canucks did have a 3 nothing lead on the road in the opener, and they had eight power plays. So really, there should have been at What's least... What's at the top of your gripe list? Uh, this is a good question. Uh, we said that there was no way that you could ignore the fact that they should have got at least a point from last night. It doesn't matter the opponent. It doesn't matter how good Drysaddle and McDavid are. If you're up 3 nothing on the road with eight power plays, you should get at least a point out we of didn't, that game. We didn't care for the missed high-sticking call on Quinn Hughes. That was also high on the gripe list. See, I, I've seen and heard all of those gripes, obviously scrolling through social media, but I'm surprised there hasn't been more griping about the penalty kill. Like that to me in the big picture is the most alarming thing from game one for the Canucks. It's I think not, it was the power play. I think the power play was worse than the PK. You, you gave up three on the PK out of four chances. You gave and up one on the team, power play. <laughs> I, I get it, but for a team – that struggled so mightily last year on the PK, specifically to start the season. Yeah, that's what sunk them last year. One of them was an empty netter, and and like I think it's also the Oilers too, right? Like the Oilers yeah, have that's, one that's hell of a of it, power right? play. Like it, it is, it is part of it for sure. Like they last year, the last couple years, they could have been one of the best power plays of all time in terms of statistics, but. Um, that like I think it has to be a focal point moving forward. You can't compete in this league if you're going to be giving up multiple goals on the power play. No, no, hey, Frank, don't get me wrong. Like we're concerned about the, <laughs> the PK last season. We know the PK was one of the major things, if not the most major things, that sunk the Canucks early in the season. We were talking about this yesterday. Actually, they had a ten game stretch where they allowed 19 power play goals against, right? Like that along with Pedersen not being with being himself and maybe just kind of a bad vibe in the room, that all contributed to the firing of Travis Green and the organizational shakeup. It, it was the PK. So obviously we have concerns about the PK, but I think last night there were just other things that came to the forefront because – Again, it was the Oilers. Like, that power play goal that they scored, the tic-tac-toe, I mean, there was more ticking and tacking that they scored. We were almost, like, more just impressed with that goal than we were concerned about the Canucks PK. I mean, you know, say what you will. Like, obviously, Canucks fans watching that game, they're frustrated that they lose, but they also, I mean, I imagine if they're hockey fans, watching Connor McDavid play is almost a privilege. I mean, it's, watching that power play is almost Harlem Globetrotter-esque. Like, it's that good. And so, again, one game and, you know, a lot of the things that you've lined up, like how often are they going to play out over the course of an 82-game season? That's why I was trying to look bigger picture and say, you know, when it comes to blowing a three-goal lead in in regulation, not going to happen all that often. Um, In terms of the power play, one for eight, like, of course, that's concerning. But I, I, for me, I, I, you know, and I get how good this power play is from the Oilers. Like, you just can't go through a stretch where, you know, they had – I, I looked it up from last season, 53 for 82 on the PK to start under Travis Green. Like, the numbers don't lie, and we talked about it, and you mentioned that's a big reason why they were in a hole that they just couldn't quite climb out of last year. We're speaking to Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff here in the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Frank, I'm, I know 
that it's tough talking about Bo Horvat contract negotiations every week when there's not a whole heck of a lot to talk about. But a significant moment has passed in the negotiation process. The regular season has started. Now, I haven't heard any edicts or rulings come down that they're going to shut down negotiations now that the regular season is underway. That's a pretty classic playbook moment in negotiations. But it's hard not to look at that and say, well, whether they say it out loud or not, it is still a fundamental moment because... Now he's going into and is in that final year, and now he can theoretically shut down talks because all he wants to do is focus on hockey. He could. I don't have any indication that that's happened yet. Um, I also don't have any indication that there's really been a significant pace or flow to the conversations. I think it's really been pretty quiet. I think there was some – I mentioned it to you guys, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago when we first fired up the chats again on Thursday – that there was a lot of friction there that existed between the Canucks and the first, um, you know, sort of offer that they volleyed over to the Horvat camp. And I think that kind of, that chilled things. I think it put it on ice and whether or not it's resumed conversation, I'm not privy to that at the moment. Um, It doesn't feel like there's been anything that's, you know, you could label as progress or, or to point to anything and say that it's imminent. Here's the thing about those types of situations is they can all change with one phone call. Like even if you decide to, you know, quote unquote, shut things down for the year. Like if you tell me that Patrick Alvin and the Canucks, you know, contact his representatives at some point this year, even though they're supposedly, if that's what happens, they say that they're not going to talk during the season and they make an offer that knocks your socks off. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's a way always to put things back on the rails. And I think the JT Miller, you know, saga and the way that that played out is the perfect reminder because I don't think any of us saw that coming in terms of the gap that was bridged between the Canucks and Miller in a really short period of time this summer. Uh, Well, I do want to say that there is one thing that's going to happen in these negotiations in about what? two and a half hours we don't love to promote other people's shows but it is worth noting that the agent pat morris is going to go on with rick dollywall and don taylor on donnie and dolly a check tv show and obviously the topic of conversation is going to be hey where are negotiations are at so things are progressing if only because they have to progress like the calendar moves time moves and this is how this is going to go sometimes these agent appearances are intentional yes. and they spice things up a little bit and that might happen well, that's, here. That's the first thing I thought of when you said it. I was right. like, be prepared. Put a, If you're the Canucks, put a helmet on. Be prepared for a hand grenade to be launched into this. One of the theories that I've got, Frank, and you know, a lot of my theories are completely wrong, but I'm still going to throw this one out here, uh, is that the Canucks are maybe okay with slow playing this a little bit because they want to see how the season starts, and they want to see that, you know, hey, maybe if the season starts badly, and I'm not predicting it is, but I'm just saying it's a possibility, maybe you want to have that bullet in the chamber, and that would be a big trade involving possibly Bo Horvat. I don't think you can ever really err in that decision-making process. Like, let's gather more information. Like, I don't think teams have ever been hurt by that. I think teams have been hurt by rushing to to make a decision and and forcing something to happen that may ultimately in the long haul may not be what's best for your team like 
not suggesting at all that that would be the case with Bo Horvat and re-signing. It's just that you want all the flexibility, you know, that you can gather. It's the old Lou Lamorello line of thinking. Um, if you have time, use it. And so in this case, given the uncertain nature of this team's expectations, where are they heading? Um, you know, does, does this core need to change? Like all those questions could be really relevant in two to three months time um, based on how this begins to unfold. Because think about last year and the way that that played out. Everyone was saying, you know, after the start of the year, December, early December, blow it up, you know, fire these guys into the sun. And it's great that they made management and, and, and front office changes and coaching changes. But at the end of the day, it's the players who play and they're the ones who are relied on for success. And if the mix isn't right, then it's not going to work. But as you saw that year unfold, you said, okay, clearly they have some pieces here to do damage. How can they go about, you know, completing the puzzle? And that's the hardest part to do if you're a general manager in the front office. And, you know, I think as you're moving the pieces around the board and trying to figure out what fits where, this is an important consideration for not just this year and next year, it's also the next five to seven years. Frank, uh, the Leafs lost last night in Montreal. Um, Some sloppy play from the team overall. Jake Muzzin didn't look good. The blue line didn't look good. Um, What's the concern level right now in Toronto, albeit it's one game? Yeah, just one game, but I would have significant concern about two facets of that. One is Jake Muzzin and his health. Like, he he doesn't look right. Clearly, he wasn't right in training camp. It's a back injury. We all know how crippling that can be. And he just – he doesn't even – like, watching that third period and the mistakes that were made, him being all over the ice, he doesn't even look close to right. And so – I think that's a huge concern, not just um, for that team and, and their overall success and, and chances, but like even just thinking further down the line towards playoffs. Like if there was ever a moment screaming to the Leafs, we need defense, like that would be it watching Jake Muzzin. The other part is Matt Murray. Like I don't want to be that guy that's sitting here after one game saying, you know, this is a huge problem for the Leafs, but. Matt Murray looked a lot like he did in in games with the Ottawa Senators. It seemed like talking to some goalie experts this morning, and we'll talk more with Mike McKenna on our show later, like it seemed like he had trouble tracking the puck. His stance is so wide that he left a lot of space uh, over his shoulder. Like it just, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't crisp. And after they tied the game in the final couple minutes, like same thing, going up against the team, uh, in the Montreal Canadiens where not much is expected and ha- it feels like half their team almost was making their NHL debuts last night. Um, exaggeration is on me that they, you know, they should have gotten out of there with at least a point, but probably two. We're speaking to Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff here on the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Frank, this happened yesterday while we were on the air uh, and I, it marked the first time I think in my career where I had to look up and figure out who a player was that had just signed a $30 million contract. Never happened before, but lo and behold, uh, Buffalo signing defenseman Matthias Samuelson yesterday to a seven-year, $30 million extension. For those listeners that wonder why I'm bringing this up, he got that extension despite having played just 54 NHL games and having yet to score his first NHL goal. But the Sabres made a lengthy and expensive 
Um, commitment to him to keep him around for, for a long time. Now, I, I'm wondering, did you do some poking around on this one? I know you put it out there when you saw it. You're like, this is very interesting. But I'm curious what the reverberations have been for that particular deal. I've really never seen a reaction quite like it. It's been so polarizing. Um, you know, immediately my phone started ringing, honestly unsolicited from people around the league saying, what the heck just happened here? And it's been polarizing for different reasons. Like I had an agent that was spouting off saying this is one of the worst contracts he's ever seen because the cap is going up in such a significant way that if you're the player and the agent, you'd have to be sitting there saying, give me a two-year bridge deal and let me cash in on a big one, you know, later on when the cap opens up a bit. Instead, congratulations on now assuring yourself that you're going to be the cheapest top four defenseman in the league for the next, you know, five to seven years. And so I was sitting there thinking, okay, that's interesting. And then I pick up my phone again and, you know, people from various front offices, like we're not even certain that this guy is an NHL player. Like we saw his last 20, 25 games of the season and thought there might be something there. And clearly the Sabres from their perspective are looking at it saying, well, if we've got a defensive defenseman, a shutdown guy that we can put on a pair with Rasmus Dahlin for the next eight years and and at this cap hit knowing that the cap's going up we're laughing now let me tie this back to vancouver you're gonna say well how would you do that patrick alvin comes from the pittsburgh penguins front office jason carmanos worked there as did sam ventura in analytics both those guys are now working for the buffalo sabers we saw the bet that they made with um with samuelson now and we saw the other one that they made this summer with Cage Thompson, another whopper contract, and seven years. And so you say, well, what's the tie back to Patrick Alvin? And that is, I wonder what his thought process is when it relates to all this, because in Pittsburgh, they also made a couple long-term bets with some guys that didn't have a ton of experience, and they're probably kicking themselves at this moment when they're looking at the contract for Marcus Pedersen, five years times four million bucks that they haven't been able to unload and the John Marino contract that was longer term uh, that they were able to get out from this summer. So some of the thought process that was in Pittsburgh on those deals has moved on to Buffalo. Patrick Alvin has moved on to Van. I wonder what he's thinking as he watches that unfold. Frank, I want to talk just a bit about Philly because the Canucks play the Flyers on Saturday afternoon. It's 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 o'clock our time. Uh, the Flyers haven't played their first game of the season. They open the season at home against the New Jersey Devils tonight. What has training camp in the preseason under torts been like in Philly? Hard. I guess that's the easiest word to use is, you know, the players have, it's been rigorous. Like the players have been through a lot, um, understanding exactly what John Tortorella is looking for and he wants. I think the interesting part about this Flyers season is they've gone from touting that they could be, you know, look at us, we're the underdogs, to, you know, you hear the rhetoric from their front office the last few days specifically is, hey, look how young this team is. We've got nine players or 10 players under the age of 25, whatever the number is. That's what their thought process has morphed into. It probably gives you some line of sight or thinking into, uh, where this team is heading. And the response from John Tortorella publicly has been, 
let's let's shut up. Let's put our heads down and work. Uh, shut your yap. And that's sort of the thought process. Um, you know, as they they're just trying to show up every day and work and grind. And I don't know that that's going to create any more talent for them in their lineup, which I think is the real deficit. But I don't know. I'll be curious to see how it all plays out. At the end of the day, where did the Flyers go so wrong? Because it seemed like a couple of years ago, I remember looking at that lineup and going, man, that 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 team is kind of like a dark horse Stanley Cup contender or not, or not even a dark horse. And then it just like, it just fell apart so quickly. It's It's kind of a reminder as you watch a team like the Colorado Avalanche, who like in four or five years go from um, – you know, sub 50 point team to Stanley cup champs, like life comes at you fast. And in the NHL, the flyers were a team that they were one game away from, you know, going to the final four in the bubble in 2020. And, and if that feels like forever ago um, and in hockey sense, in some ways it was, but it, it's really what I see is an issue with development and an erosion of talent and a, a lack, you know, they didn't hit on all their picks. Like, that's really part of what it comes down to. Some of the guys that we thought would be really good, the Ivan Provorovs and Travis Konechny's have sort of flatlined. They've had some injuries and some unfortunate transactions with Ryan Ellis. Sean Couturier's gone down. Kevin Hayes missed most of last year. He was a big signing. Um, it, it's And now they're in this spot where they have a lack of talent, and their pipeline is sort of empty. They, there's not anyone that you can point to in their system and say, you know what, that guy's going to be the next something. And so now they're stuck in this sort of no man's land. And um, it's 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 crazy to think that this is where they're at right now with no sort of viable path back to being competitive. Frank, this was great, bud. Thanks a lot for doing it. Enjoy all the games tonight and this weekend. I really thrilled the next week. We'll do this again next Thursday. Yep, sounds good. Hang in there, guys. Talk to you soon. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. That's Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. We did mention the Canucks are next back in action on Saturday, a 1 o'clock our time affair, in the afternoon, that is. Not 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, in Philadelphia against the Flyers. If you would like a little bit of a preview on what you're going to see from the Flyers, you can watch them tonight. They open their season at home against the New Jersey Devils tonight. Mm-hmm. So there'll be a game to watch. I was going through some of the Flyers news and notes. That is a very, very underwhelming lineup, especially at forward that they're going to throw out there. They got so many guys that are hurt. They got so many guys that I don't really know who they are. Who is a Wade Allison? Who I don't is know. Noah he's Cates? A, he's their second line right winger, though. Who, who is Noah Cates? Tenor Lachinsky? Hayden Hodgson? These Wade, are- Wade Allison. He sounds like a player from the 80s that played for the Hartford Whalers, I want to say. Did you mention uh, Hayden Hodgson? I just did, yes. Okay. Noah Cates, Tanner Lachinsky. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is Igor a Igor Zamula? I love Igor Zamula. He's a defenseman, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So they are, they're not a good team. By design, they're not a good team. They're in some, they're in some very weird... They're in a very weird hybrid situation where they're not bad enough to be with the Chicago's and the Arizona's of the world. But they're obviously not going to be good enough to be anything more than a surprise fringe playoff mm. contender if they overachieve, right? And on this road trip, this is probably the most winnable game for the Canucks. Granted, there are other games that they could easily win. Washington, Columbus, you know, Washington lost last night. Didn't look particularly good against the Bruins. Mm-hmm. We've talked about them getting older, missing some key players. 
Uh, Columbus lost also last night to Carolina. They lost Patrick Laine to an injury. We'll see how long he's out for. And then they finished the the road trip with I, – I, the, the bookends of the road trip are their toughest games, right? You yeah. start in Edmonton. You end in Minnesota. It's the mushy middle. Yeah. That the Canucks can results. hopefully get some get some results. And I know we're up against it for time, but I the one X factor with Philly to me is that they're unpredictable because it's the new torts regime. And I don't know if you've seen some of the clips where he's been mic'd up and behind the bench, and he's openly like ask. There's what a clip of him and Owen Tippett, and he's like, "What are you to this team? What's your role? Are you a goal scorer? Are you a banger? I need to know. You need to show me what you are. I'm a banger. Yeah. And then he's like, I "Say wish- it like you mean it. I'm a banger." And he's like, "I wish I didn't say it out loud." Actually, you're a goal scorer <laughs> on camera with the microphone. <laughs> but you want to chime in there, Andy? Are you a banger yourself? <sighs> I was going to say something, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, point being, the early season challenges and the bag skates and riling up Tortorella, the torts riling up process, it can get results early because guys are playing with an energy and guys have something to prove. He's made it very clear that you have something to prove to me. I'm being John Tortorella now. Mm -hmm. You have something to prove to me. And the response could be guys playing with their hair on fire and guys going out and, you know, roughing it up. And he, yeah. it's very formulaic what he's doing. But he said, I want to get back to being the Philadelphia Flyers. And you guys well, they're going to the be aggressive, know what right? that means. I think yeah. they're going to forecheck aggressively. Um, and that'll be a, a test for the Canucks defenseman. Uh, moving the puck, that sort of thing. I mean, that's that's what that's what you should really do with a with a young team is you should just forecheck aggressively, use your young legs, use your energy, use your will mm-hmm. um, to try and you know break down the other side's defense. Uh, you know, if the Canucks get through that, okay, they'll, they'll be sitting pretty. But if they don't, they might have some trouble with that Flyers team. Uh, lots more to get to on the Halford and Bruff Show. Final hour coming up. We're going to talk some Mariners. We're going to do what we learn. Don't go anywhere. Keep it right here. Halford, Bruff, Sportsnet 650.